I think it's clear from the uh, size of the audience, uh, as for an extra session that we're able to throw in, uh, that people already know about Professor McFarqua. Uh, as you know, his classes were among the largest uh, in Harvard of any kind, any subject. And uh, when he was, I think, 30 years old, he founded the China Quarterly. Uh, and he, as you know, he'd written many uh, books, uh, particularly on the background of the Cultural Revolution and played a big role in the Cambridge History uh, volumes. And uh, we're lucky uh, that he was willing to talk to us about the uh, 19th Party Congress. I've been wanting to have a, a session on this. and. Uh, so we're very delighted he agreed to talk. And without further ado, Rod, it's yours. It's always great to be introduced by Ezra. You feel like a hero when you start. <laughs> it's up to you how you feel at the end. Um, Ezra actually should be talking because he's just come back from China and Japan, but we'll make sure that he talks about that in due course. Um, we're going to talk about the leadership uh, and Xi Jinping in particular, because of course Xi Jinping, uh, who had already achieved a, a major position in Chinese politics and in its history, uh, has risen even further as a result of the uh, 19th Party Congress. Now, uh, I will tell you this. The good thing about your coming today is that the staff of the, the uh, Fairbank Center have prepared a chart of all of the Politburo and the Politburo Standing Committee and the positions that we know they occupy. But you're not going to be given it till you leave, because I don't want you all looking down and not listening to me. But first of all, please, those people who can name every member of the new Politburo Standing Committee, raise your hands. <laughs> About three, I think. And of those three, those who can name the rank order, raise your hands. Two. That's pretty good, actually. <laughs> pretty good. Um, because uh, what is really vital about this Congress is the fact that this was the first time that Xi chose his own leadership team. When he came into power five years ago, of course, he was a very big man, general secretary and uh, chairman of the Military Affairs Commission, president of the People's Republic of China. But the people who rose with him were not chosen by him. They were chosen by the people who chose him. So they were all roughly equal, except for one thing. Uh, he had the legitimacy of having been the one who won, the one who was chosen. And uh, as I tell people many times, this is a particular legitimacy in China, because he's the first leader since Mao himself who was chosen by his peers. Before Mao, they were pretty well chosen by the Russians. and. Uh, after Mao, they were chosen by Mao or by Deng Xiaoping. But Hu Jintao was the last of Deng Xiaoping's choices. Xi Jinping arose from the mass of the elite who preceded him. 
So he had a legitimacy from the very beginning, and he, he worked on that legitimacy by establishing very quickly, as many of you in this room will know, very powerful control over the uh, workings of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, he, so he chose this time his own top leadership. And uh, I want to now put that top leadership on the, you see them all, you would be there, there, I would be there, there they are. Now, Xi Jinping, you know, from the center, chairman of virtually everything. The new committees, the old committees, he has been chairing every important committee ever since he took over as general secretary. And that has been to the detriment of the only other person who survives from the uh, previous Politburo Standing Committee, the Prime Minister Li Keqiang. And uh, Li Keqiang is a sad figure in my view. Uh, we have been used in the past to a Zhurongji, a man of enormous energy, but most, uh, most potently of enormous self-confidence. And he ran the economy under Jiang Zemin. Jiang Zemin was content to let him run it. Li Keqiang has not run the economy. He's been number two to Xi Jinping on the two major economic committees of which they are both members. And uh, I think the reason is that Xi Jinping, from the beginning, has intended to show that Li Keqiang, the one person who was appointed with him uh, and was likely to stay for the same number of years as himself, was definitely number two, and he was number one. So he has, tried, he has cut for me a slightly sad figure. Now, another Li, Li Jiangshu on Xi Jinping's right, very important man, one of key allies of, uh, uh, of the general secretary. He has been the head of the general office of the central committee. That's the sort of nerve center. It controls the paper flow of the, of the central committee. So a very important office and uh, one which has now got him into this number three spot. Number four, Wang Yang. Wang Yang is a very interesting person. He was, um, I'm going to read something to you because it caused a sensation at the time. He was, uh, as a vice premier a few years ago, he came to Washington for the joint US-China economic summit. And um, he, uh, he said that the relationship between the United States and China is like a marriage with both parties building trust and cooperation. And then he went on to say, to apparently the embarrassment of his Chinese colleagues, but the delight of the press, of the US press, however, it is not like a gay marriage. <laughs> Though he had learned that uh, in Washington DC, gay marriages were possible, that was not what they were gonna do. He and Jack Lew, who was the American opposite number. In China, when we say a pair of new people, we mean a newlywed couple. Although US law does permit marriage between two men, I don't think that's what Jacob Lou or I actually want. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine 
most of the Chinese Politburo, any others of the Chinese Politburo saying that? Public? Wang Yang is interesting too. He was the one person who was, whose name was put around as a likely member of the Standing Committee, whom I was dubious about, not because of himself, but because he is known as a reformer. He is, as many of you will remember, was the uh, thriving party secretary of Guangdong province, noted for being a can-do person. He was the person who also who uh, settled the case of the Wukan village, which rebelled against some of the land uh, distribution that was done by Carders illegitimately and settled it rather peacefully, uh, though the village today is on, under lockdown, according to a recent Reuters visit. Um, but he's seen as definitely a reformer. And how does that sit, I thought to myself, with uh, Xi Jinping, who has increasingly, over the last five years, shown that he really does believe in the importance of state-owned enterprises and their power within the economy. And I've been wondering whether or not, since the economy has not really developed in the way that people had hoped it would over the last five years. They passed resolutions in the Central Committee uh, for a number of years um, saying what they were going to do, but nothing actually gelled the way that they hoped it would. And it occurred to me that maybe they are hoping that Wang Yang may be the person who can turn this around, who can somehow square the circle and make, the, make it possible for there to be a strong SOE component in the economy, but also a, a vibrant uh, private enterprise economy. In fact, frankly, I think when the positions are distributed the next time, because we have a whole set of government offices which will be distributed at the National People's Congress in the, the spring of next year, which is why on this chart that you can be uh, collecting as you go out, uh, you will see that there are question marks. It seems to me that on that occasion, it wouldn't be a bad idea to make Wang Yang, who is known and respected in the West uh, for his liberal and dynamic approach to the economy, uh, prime minister, and maybe Li Keqiang could be vice president, because that will certainly be a vacant post. But now that I've said it, no one will listen to me. Um, but one reason why I say that Wang Yang might be a possible prime minister is because almost immediately after the Congress, uh, he was, wrote an article in the People's Daily when it, saying that China should improve the business environment for foreign investors and further widen access to its services sector, things that foreign businessmen have long wanted. China must also protect intellectual property, something that American presidents have long been inveighing about. Not require technology transfer as a condition of gaining market access and should treat domestic and foreign firms equally in government procurement and the country's next five-year plan. Well, as one commentator said, uh, we've heard this before and I'll believe it when I see it, even though Wang Yang is saying it. But it's interesting that he's saying it and it may indicate something about his future. Now, after Wang Yang, we have on the other side, where Wang Yang's here, so we have over there, let me see who it is, Wang Huning, the other Wang, no relation, of course. Wang Huning, I think, is 
the most interesting promotion into the Politburo Standing Committee. He could be any one of the Chinese students in this room or the Chinese professors in this room because he was a brilliant student in East China Normal and then at Fudan, uh, became a professor of law at the age of 30 and uh, uh, went off to the United States for six months, wrote a book called America Against America, which might sound familiar to Americans today, um, and uh, is reported uh, to have uh, developed all sorts of ideas in his columns and the books that he published while still in academia. But he was promoted by party officials in Shanghai, and Jiang Zemin listened to them and took him into the research office of the Central Committee. And uh, he thrived there, absolutely thrived. And he is reported to have been a major drafter of Jiang Zemin's three represents. And he ended up at the end of uh, the five years uh, under Jiang Zemin in 2002, he was head of the office. And from there, he's gone from strength to strength. Now, overtly, he should be a member of the Shanghai gang. And that's how some people have thought of him in this elevation of the leadership. And I shall talk about that in a minute. But in fact, Hu Jintao took him over. So he developed the scientific theory of development. Uh, and he went with Hu Jintao everywhere. And Xi Jinping took him over. So he goes with Xi Jinping to places as well. So this is an amazing person who is still an academic. He's still in the research area. He's still policy-oriented. He's a wonk, if you like. But three different, very different leaders and different factions, if you want to say it, have actually put him uh, at their side and taken him to places and promoted him all the time. You know, this is not a particularly apt comparison, but the only other ex-academic I can think of in any country that was, is regularly consulted by everyone of every party is Kissinger. Because, you know, everyone has to have Kissinger into the candidate's office or into the president's office because somehow that conveys the, an aura of wisdom upon the candidate or the president himself. Uh, Wang Kuning seems to be in the same category. Really quite, quite amazing. So one must watch him. Incidentally, he made friends during his six months in America, but apparently if he's in a gathering with Americans present, he never talks to them. He never talks to foreigners if possible. Uh, he is now very firmly in the Chinese power structure, and he knows where not to take risks. <coughs> Next one is Ah, Zhao Liji. Very important ally also of the uh, general secretaries. He is the head of the organization department. Maybe he'll stop being that in due course, but at the moment he's head of the organization department. Most important, he has been made the head of the anti-corruption commission. So it was he, and rather grim aspect to his face here, 
I'm sure he smiles other times. But uh, he is the man who's going to be corruption hunting over the next few years. And that brings me to one of the main question marks that was hanging over the whole of the speculation in, in Beijing and in uh, Western sources uh, before the Congress, and that is, would Wang Qishan, the then head of the anti-corruption agency, would he be allowed to continue? Now, the Chinese have developed a rule about government offices, but it's more norm with uh, party offices. And uh, you, were, you, you are supposed to be out by about 70. And the rule roughly taken is, if you're 68, eh. If you're 67, maybe. And uh, Wang Qishan was 69, so there's no question that he was due for retirement. And the question was, was he so vital to Xi Jinping's work on corruption that he should be kept on? And uh, there was for and against arguments. The people who uh, saw that he wasn't being kept on said, well, maybe it was the revelations by that exile fugitive Chinese billionaire from his New York luxury pad about corruption in the in the, uh, Wang Qishan's family. I think, frankly, that um, though the Chinese sent over two lots of um, uh, state security officials to talk to uh, Mr. Guo in uh, New York and actually succeeded in silencing him during the party congress. I don't think that uh, that would have stopped Xi from promoting him uh, if uh, he had wanted it. Uh, it's conceivable that um, Wang just wanted to retire and read, as he kept telling people. Uh, but before the uh, Congress, there was a period of a few weeks when he was absent, and people confidently said, oh, he's dying of cancer. Uh, then he reappeared at formal occasions looking much the same as ever. So that disappeared as, as reasoning. Uh, my own feeling is, and uh, this is all guesswork on all our parts, my own feeling is that um, to have promoted him or kept him on uh, rather as a member of the PSC at the age of 69 would have been a signal, a hint about Xi's own future decisions and that he decided that he'd won one great victory for this Congress and he didn't want to risk uh, putting another one in jeopardy before he had to, which would be in five years' time. I'll come back to that in due course. It's certainly not the case that he had lost confidence in, uh, in Wang Qishan. Here is the, what, what he said about the last report of the Discipline Inspection Commission, the Anti-Corruption Investigation Agency, in January when it made a report to the Central Committee. President Xi Jinping concluded that corruption had stopped spreading in China and a crushing momentum against graft had taken shape. And the figures 
are fairly impressive. Uh, almost 75,000 officials in the nomenclatura, that's to say the people who are under the direct control, ultimately, of the Central Committee, 75,000. And then uh, of the people handed over to the judicial authorities for suspected corruption, 35,000. People receiving party or administrative penalties for breaking party discipline, that's ordinary party members, the, the flies, not the tigers, 1,375,000. So these are fairly impressive figures uh, for what the committee had been doing. And so I don't think it was for lack of competence and lack of activity that um, uh, Wang Shishan was let go. So there's his replacement. Finally, we have Han Zheng, uh, who is the first secretary of Shanghai. And um, people use this uh, presence of Han Zhang and Wang Huning. They said, oh, that's him appeasing the Shanghai faction. And then they used uh, Li Keqiang and Wang Yang as saying, that's appeasing the Youth League faction. And um, I just don't, I don't believe that because uh, Xi Jinping is far too powerful, has been far too powerful, uh, to, uh, to have to worry about factions any longer. I think very quickly after he took power five years ago, uh, it was clear that this would be his leadership team and not a factional uh, grouping. And just to underline this, the other day, we had news of his attack on the Youth League. The Youth League's, uh, anyone here was a member of the Youth League or is a member of the Youth League? No. Uh, well, then you won't worry so much because the, they are demolishing the China Youth University of Political Studies, which is a way in which Youth League cadres are developed and sent on to bigger things. But the more important show of what he contempt that the Xi Jinping has for the Youth League is that the first secretary of the Youth League was not elected even to the party congress. Not a question of getting the central committee or anything like that. It wasn't even a delegate to the party congress and then he was dismissed. So the Youth League, which Li Keqiang has been seen as the uh, leading spokesman for, really doesn't count as a power block in Xi Jinping's world. He dominates that. And as for Wang Huning, Wang Huning, you have gathered from what I've already said about him, is no longer a Shanghai intellectual. He is a Chinese intellectual. He's a leadership intellectual. And uh, Han Zheng, you will remember that if he wants to stay in the Politburo Standing Committee. But I don't know what exactly jo the job will be that he will be given. Now, I've said a lot about the Politburo Standing Committee. Uh, you all know, of course, that the Politburo Standing Committee is chosen by the Poly from the Politburo, but not by the Politburo. It's chosen by the, the General Secretary and his closest uh, allies. 
and perhaps by in consultation with those he feels he has to consult with, which is not very many, I would think, in the case of Xi Jinping. Um, and the Politburo is chosen from the Central Committee, but not by the Central Committee for the same reason. Uh, so you get the picture. This leadership ultimately is chosen by the head of the organization department, uh, the head of the general office, and by the general secretary. They are the people who say, ultimately, who is going to be in this leadership. And that's, I think, that most members of the leadership will certainly have grasped. OK, so much for the leadership, except that even the Politburo Standing Committee are not quite the leadership, because the Politburo has already published rules so that each Politburo member has to report to the, each year to the General Secretary about their activities. It seems to me very demeaning that they have to do this. And they've given all sorts of other rules about what they can and what they cannot do, because they're going to be kept in line. And I think that this is a very clear indication of how powerful uh, Xi Jinping has become. Remember what he has achieved, two things also, in the five years that he's been in power. He has been anointed as the core of the Chinese leadership. Now, Jiang Zemin was also called the core by Deng Xiaoping, but that was a sort of transitory thing because Jiang Zemin was appointed at short notice when after Tiananmen and Zhao Ziyang were sacked. But Xi Jinping was appointed core of the leadership, and this has been made great uh, great play has been made with this to show how important it is. And the other thing he has been made has been made commander-in-chief of the military, not just chairman of the party's military affairs commission, but commander-in-chief. And if you watch the uh, 90th anniversary parade of the People's Liberation Army, uh, you will see Xi Jinping going down the ranks of the military on parade in a jeep, uh, dressed in military fatigues. And I think, just let me uh, lay a little teaser here, I think that it's possible that this may be, at one, some point, his undoing. But I'll come back to that. But the main achievement, apart from choosing his own Politburo, his own Politburo Standing Committee, and making sure the Central Committee is roughly what he wants. But the main achievement, of course, as you all know by now, of the 19th Congress from the point of view of Xi Jinping was the following. This is the party constitution. Never leave the house without it. The Communist Party of China uses Marxism-Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, thought, Deng Xiaoping theory, the theory of the three represents, Zhang Zemin, not mentioned, the, develop, the uh, scientific outlook on development, Hu Jintao, not mentioned, and Xi Jinping fought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era as its guides to action. So there are two thoughts in that, Mao's thought and Xi Jinping's thought. And yet, so far of all the, thought, all the things that you can think of, actually the three represents 
and even the scientific outlook and development represent something more than thoughts for a new era. It's not quite clear what thoughts for a new era are. And we are told they will evolve over the years and will have to be uh, watched while they are evolving. Here we have, a little later in the, in the Constitution, these theories, the, and the, the Xi Jinping thought is the latest achievement in adapting Marxism to Chinese context, a crystallization of the practical experience and collective wisdom of the party and people. An important component of the theoretical system of socialism with Chinese characteristics and a guide to action for the entire party and all the Chinese people to strive for the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation and must be upheld long term and constantly developed. In other words, this is with us, with the Chinese people, for years to come, barring accidents, of course. Um, and I think that this really is a massive breakthrough for Xi Jinping. I've said for some years now that um, Xi was more powerful than any Chinese leader since Mao, even more powerful than Deng Xiaoping, because Deng Xiaoping had colleagues who were equal to him or senior to him even uh, in the leadership who argued with him all through the reform era. Xi Jinping has not had that. And now he has been elevated beyond Deng Xiaoping. I mean, let's face it, in this room, probably many of us would think that Deng Xiaoping is a man who has led to the modernization of China. It may be just a theory, but his policies have led to the extraordinary development of the Chinese nation over the last uh, 30 or 40 years. And yet, Xi Jinping has outtopped him, has outtopped him with thought and not just a theory. And so that must have been an enormous lift to make sure that no one objected to it. And I think that merely putting that in the Constitution shows how powerful uh, Xi Jinping actually has become. Now, my own feeling is that what we are seeing here is the emergence of the second great leader of the revolution. If you look back at the Soviet Union, you had Lenin. Without Lenin, there would not have been a Bolshevik revolution. He had to bully his colleagues into having a revolution. He had to argue with them and tell them that they had to have a revolution. Without him, there would have been no revolution. But he died seven years later, and gradually after struggles and purges, Stalin emerged as the second great leader of the uh, Soviet Union, the one who took the country forward into a modern industrial nation. And I think what we're seeing here is the emergence of a second great leader of the Chinese Revolution, at least in embryo. That's what he wants to be. And I think that, uh, I, I'm not, let me be clear, I'm not saying that Xi Jinping is going to be as bloodthirsty as Stalin. I'm not equating him to Stalin in that sense. I'm equating him to Stalin in the sense that you can have a founding revolutionary who's a great person but then you can have another great person in that revolution who then carries on the task and takes the country to new, new heights. 
and Xi Jinping aims to be that. We all know what his aims are declared to be. The rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, something which has been dear to Chinese hearts for over a century or more. And uh, he wants that rejuvenation to include traditional Chinese culture. He's no less a communist than anyone else, though in the Chinese leadership, though I would say he was less a communist than Gorbachev. Gorbachev genuinely believed in communism, genuinely wanted to restore the Soviet Communist Party and restore a decent Soviet Union. I'm not sure Xi Jinping has quite the same thorough faith in Marxism and Leninism that Gorbachev had. But what he does have is a faith in the Chinese nation. And he has, is willing, I think, to accept any part of that cultural heritage, the 4,000 years as opposed to the 5,000 years, um, any part of that cultural heritage which is acceptable to the people and does not actually offend against Marxism-Leninism. Because the point is that he has an insoluble problem. In my view, looking at what he said over the years, uh, his ideal period in the Chinese Revolution was the early 50s. The Chinese party had just come to power. Its morale was high, its corruption was low. The Chinese army was victorious. The Chinese people accepted Marxism-Leninism. Most of them knew, didn't know what it meant, but it was the doctrine of the victorious leaders of China. Today, China is very different. Mao could say China is poor and blank, but we can write beautiful characters on it. Today, China is no longer poor and blank. It's very different China from the early 50s. And Marxism-Leninism is no longer something which I suspect most members of the Chinese Communist Party, all 98 million of them, uh, really believe in. Not as a guide to action on a day-to-day -day basis, which they may have done back in the 50s. And what Xi Jinping believes in is that they need to devise policies for the 21st century and for the modern economy and the thriving nation which China has become. Uh, and for that purpose, he will accept as part of the Chinese heritage anything, as I say, which is not actually against Marxism-Leninism. A Buddhist temple, why not? People go there, they're harmless, no problem will occur. The only problem may occur with Christian churches, which, as you know, have had crosses knocked off them and steeples knocked off them and uh, being harried. Taoism, uh, why not? Harmless to Marxism-Leninism. People can follow it. And uh, there's no problem, and they'll be satisfied. And what the Chinese leaders want, in a nation of 1.3 billion, or maybe 1.4 by now, what the Chinese leaders have always wanted is calm, order, no chaos, no uprisings. And so anything which can be in the realm of religion or traditional culture, which isn't actually offensive, like, for instance, the uh, uh, Jiang Zemin found with the, uh, with the traditional 
development of, uh, of uh, ex martial exercises. Um, anything which is not actually offensive to the ideals of the regime can be accepted because it'll keep the people happy and calm as they get richer. Now, we know that he wants this rejuvenation. We also know that he uh, wants to develop China's external standing. China is emerging as uh, number one, he thinks. The Chinese party leadership probably think that it will be not too distant future number one. Uh, the Trump administration's policies abroad probably encouraged that thought. Um, and he also wants to make sure that the territory of the Chinese people and the, like the islands which they claim uh, will be protected. And he's, they are prepared now to take on almost all comers. They don't want any struggle. They don't want a war with Japan or certainly not with the United States. But they're prepared to stand up for their, what they consider their rights under Xi Jinping. So this is a very tough leadership. And uh, the, the sort of benevolent side is the Obol, one belt, one road. The economic development of the landmass from China through Eurasia to the Europe and the sea route also. This is the way that with millions of dollars, yuan, that the Chinese will pour into the area, they will win friends and influence people and do good instead, in many cases, I'm sure. What is the one problem that might arise for Xi Jinping? Well, there's only one rule of thumb for any Chinese leader over the centuries, and that is, Make sure the military is on your side. And you, many of you may remember that at the very beginning of Xi's administration, there was this extraordinary sight of 18 generals writing short paragraphs in the People's Daily. Same day, same news section, saying how loyal they were to the party and by implication the general secretary himself. And uh, I'm sure they felt that was the case. I have to say that um, uh, Xi Jinping has not let the army off the hook in terms of corruption investigation. Two vice chairmen of the Military Affairs Commission were disciplined because of corruption, genuine corruption, incidentally, I believe. Um, and uh, other military people have also suffered. And of course, Xi Jinping has done what other leaders before have done that, promoted generals whom he thought was, were uh, allies and supporters. The only question is whether or not that designation, that self-designation of himself as commander-in-chief went too far. He doesn't have a military background. He was briefly in the service of an aide to uh, General Gang Biao but uh, it hardly counted as military service. And I, I remember always that when Huang Gofeng was dismissed in, in the early 80s, the thing that people threw at him most was that he should never have been chairman of the Military Affairs Committee. You know, he could be prime minister, he could be general secretary, that's fine, but never should he be 
chairman of the Military Affairs Committee, because what did he know about the military? And so I think there is a, a potential danger for Xi with the military, and he will know that. All Chinese leaders know that, and he will make sure that it doesn't uh, get too, too dangerous for him. But that's the only chink, possible chink in his armor that I can see, because at the moment, We've seen the rise, not just the rise, but the apotheosis of Xi Jinping at the 19th Congress. And I believe, and I hope we'll all be here to see whether I'm right or wrong, that in five years' time of the 20th Congress, he will go on and continue as General Secretary. He will not retire. Thank you. Okay. No questions so far. Oh, yes. Um, thank you very much for your presentation. I have two questions. One is, sorry, uh, I'm, I'm Roger DeForge here, uh, associate of the Fairbank Center, uh, professor emeritus of Chinese history from State University of New York. His son was my student. <laughs> um, I have two questions. One is, you've made the parallel with the Soviet Union, with Lenin and Stalin. What if we make a parallel with Juyan Zhang and Yong Luo? Uh, what kind of what kind sorry of with who? from Yongluo uh, in the Ming Dynasty. If we take that, that parallel seriously, what, what would be the implications of that? And the second question, perhaps related, but maybe not, um, where did this idea of term limits come from? Because it seems to me it's a major change from Mao to Deng Xiaoping and then, then term limits. Where did it come from and why is it going to disappear? I'm not sure about the answer to the first one, but let me deal with the second. Uh, what Deng Xiaoping did not want to have happen was what happened in 76, when Zhou Enlai died in his late 70s, Mao died in his late 80s, in early 80s, and Judah died in his late 80s. All of them still in office, officially. And uh, that wasn't good for the country, it wasn't good for the leadership, it wasn't good for people rising up, and he determined that it should change. And basically his rule was, uh, two promotions, and if you don't go any further, you're out. And that happens in the military in America and in other countries too, and probably in the civil service. Um, two promotions, if you don't can't make it further up, you're out. And by the way, 70 is the limit anyway. And I think it's a rule in the in the government apparatus and a norm in the party because when there was discussion earlier in the year, a wide discussion outside China about Wang Qishan's future, there were people inside China, officials inside China, decrying the idea that there was any 70 rule. So that means that there is some kind of a, a norm there. That's why all five people other than Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang retired because they were all of that age. Uh, Ross Terrell, a brilliant talk. 
Rod. I don't think we should take party constitutions with an untouchable uh, assurance. The Ninth Party Congress was a triumph for Lin Biao, uh, successor to Mao. The Tenth had uh, Wonderboy Wang uh, riding high. That didn't save him. Judge Young wrote things in the 1987 uh, report, but that didn't save him from a fall. I wonder if it, the performance of the economy will not really be uh, almost as important as Xi's relation to the military in his hope for an indefinite future. The second point is, I agree with you about Xi and Marxism. He doesn't develop it at all. Bin did develop it in Sangha Dabya. And I think that work and Deng Xiaoping's 1981 document on Mao, they are much more Marxist in their actual content than she, in his book, The China Governments, no, just words about Marxism. And uh, so I, I agree with you that his nationalist instincts seem to be stronger than his, his Marxist ones. Um, the uh, first point you made was about the uh, disappearance of various successes even ones written into the Constitution. Uh, the point about those people disappearing was they were always number two. Xi Jinping is not number two, he's number one. So he is the man who would dispose of his successor. Uh, and uh, one point which I didn't make, but which has uh, been widely made in China, is that he chose no successor in this Congress. When, uh, when he became uh, uh, vice president uh, way back, before he became uh, the leader, it was clear that he was being chosen as the next leader of China. Um, and uh, he has made sure that no one can say that they are being chosen. No one in the top leadership at the moment can say that they have been chosen as the top leader of China. Um, so I don't think that is a problem. The economy is a very important point, though, because um, uh, I think that is a good reason why he might appoint Wang Yang to a very powerful position in running the economy, because he knows that they have to transform the economy from its export-led growth to a consumer-led growth economy. And uh, that is something which will involve a very careful calibration of state-owned and private enterprise. Um, and Wang Yang may be the person to, to do that. But I agree with you, it is a serious problem. And what the Chinese Communist leadership has run on over the last 30, 40 years has been what one might call a competence mandate. We can deliver the goods, so we'll stay in power. And if they stop being able to deliver the goods, if there's real economic hardship, then what you say may be, may be correct. She may be threatened. Um, you talk about uh, what she said in, in his book on governance, just words. Uh, yes, they are just words. They're the practical words. The, uh, I've just got a book called Xi Jinping quotes the ancients, quotes Confucius and other ancient philosophers. 
and uh, what the author of these quotations, I mean the author of the um, book which contains the quotations has done, has been to show where the quotation comes from and show that it come, it's been used in a practical way in a speech of Xi Jinping. So he's a practical man and he knows that that's the way that he can survive if he maintains a decent practice in running the country, which will include, of course, mainly the economy. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I'm uh, Esan Masood. I'm a Knight Fellow at uh, MIT. Do you think that the uh, the leadership of China prefers the administration of Donald Trump to that of the uh, previous uh, administration? <coughs> Well, that really depends. The answer to that really depends on whether you think Donald Trump has screwed up the whole of American relations in Southeast Asia and East Asia with his disavowal of the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership TPP trade agreement. Uh, it'll depend on whether you think that this is a man who can be fooled by uh, flattery and uh, a great welcoming ceremonies, which I think the Chinese have already realized. Uh, incidentally, I don't know what other Chinese in this audience feel, but a Chinese are speaking to me about the uh, reception which Xi Jinping gave to Trump in the Forbidden City, where he actually had a, a uh, some Peking opera played in, in front of him in the Forbidden City. And um, this Chinese citizen commented that this was the first time that a president had been taken to the Forbidden City, not just as a tourist, look, here's this, here's that, here's the other thing. It was, he said, almost as if Xi Jinping was treating the Forbidden City as his own home. Now, I don't know if anyone agrees with that, but anyway, it shows the degree to which the Chinese realize this man can be flattered. And they've strung him along now for what, how long has he been in power? 10 months, uh, no change in trade, no help with uh, that's been effective on North Korea. No sign of North Korea giving up its nukes or its missiles. They'll keep on trying. The lady next to you. Uh, I'm Audrey. Behind you. Um, thank you, Professor, for your excellent presentation. Um, um, could you please um, tell me your opinion towards those um, social stratification in China? Uh, I'm, we know I'm sorry, the social, what were those words? Um, stratification, the social inequality in China. How will President Xi deal with this issue? Thank you. Well, the uh, one of the things about uh, scientific theory and development was, in fact, uh, it had a, polit a, a concrete policy uh, co component, and that was that the West was losing out as compared with the coast, and Hu Jintao wanted to try and uh, rectify that balance. Because, as you well know, China, from being a very equal society, has become probably the most unequal society in East Asia. Um, I don't think at the moment that there is any concrete policy in being which they've adopted which is going to do anything about that. But that will be the job for this administration. Xi Jinping is now fully in power. There's nothing to stop him adopting radical policies on inequality or pollution. Now is the time to do it. Lady in front. 
Thank you. Um, in 2012, when Mr. C took office, there were quite a lot of liberal-minded intellectuals in China were optimistic that he could make political reform and social reform happen in China. Uh, quite a lot of them called him the second Chiang Kuo in China. Even now, there is this kind of voice going something like, uh, if he's not so determined to do something, why does he consolidate his power? What do you think about that? Thank you. I didn't quite get that. Are you saying that uh, what will he do with the intellectuals and the uh, uh, reformers? No, I'm saying, are you optimistic that Mr. Xi could make political and social reform happen, uh, reality in China in the, in the future within his two terms or three terms? Do you think that could happen? Um, well, my feeling is that uh, what you see is what you get. Uh, everyone has um, has hoped in China that the next leader would be better than the last, and it's been the other way around. In other words, that the intellectual atmosphere under Hu Jintao was tighter than under Jiang Zemin. Jiang Zemin, of course, was tighter than the 80s. Um, and the atmosphere under Xi Jinping, who was seen uh, as a potential reformer uh, has been tighter, much tighter. Arrests of uh, journalists, arrests of uh, human rights lawyers, all you know it all. Um, and I think that um, that uh, there's no question that, that that tightness will continue to prevail. Some people have hoped in China, I think, that first he needs to seize power and be sure that he's in command, then he'll liberalize. I'm afraid I think that's a pipe dream. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Professor. So I'm a Chinese high school student. I'm here, I'm on a program in a Harvard for 10 days study. So uh, my question is, um, I quite agree with you because I think currently and she exactly held the power strictly. Um, China has stepped into a new era where no, where in the past no leaders uh, can hold this kind of power because there's always some voice op op opposite. But now no one can dare to stand on the opposite side of Xi. So my question is, um, in the history, um, many politicians who held the country security, the, the country, the situation will become less democratic, less in the, in the past. So at this new era, um, when she holds, holds power uh, strictly, so is it possible that the country will be more democratic, or on the other side, will, the, will there be more strict, will be more, more strict regulations, laws, that kind of thing? Yeah. Well, I think the basic uh, answer to that is that what Xi Jinping and many Chinese leaders since the era of, uh, end of the Cultural Revolution have wanted is a China's rule by law, not of law. In other words, law will not be superior to the Chinese Communist Party's decisions. And that means the decisions of the leadership, which means the decisions of the leader. So I think that the, um, the situation is not going to ease up. Uh, if you look at what Wang Huning has written, and been read by presumably by all the three leaders who uh, adopted him, 
uh, it is uh, very much against the infiltration of Western-style democracy into China. His six months in America did not convince him that that was what we wanted. So you're not going to get it. I'm Rudolf Wagner here from the Fairbank Center. Thank you for the talk. I have a, on the director of Mahuning a particular question. I mean, in the early 80s, uh, he was, as a matter of fact, one in, in early 89, so he was one of the people who started the uh, Xinjiang Weijui, the new authoritarianism uh, discussion, uh, which is, of course, not a discussion which is derived from Marxism-Leninism, but from Samuel Huntington, your colleague here. So, as a matter of fact, what we here have now, as your Zhongguo Tersel, the Shohui Zhui Daolu, and Xi Jinping Sixiang, you know, sounds very much like uh, uh, what uh, uh, Mr. Huntington was thinking the early in the mid 80s and late 80s so uh, and that i think is a very marked thing namely that the the essence of this seems to be as a matter of fact namely a strong authoritarian government an appeal to chinese nationalism and as a matter of fact the the great great you know kind of a grand future and that is a kind of a thing which in terms of its particular content sounds very American. <laughs> American of the past. <laughs> Thank you. I agree with what you just said. Thank you. My name is Boye Lundgren, a former Swedish ambassador to China. Um, Oh, shortly after uh, becoming post secretary in December of 2012, um, Xi Jinping uh, uh, delivered a speech in Guangdong to uh, party people where he spoke about the Soviet Union. And he said, How could it happen? How could it collapse? It must never happen here. And he said, well, Certain things must then be done. We must never nationalize PLA. It must be under the party. You must fight corruption, you must be more, more strict when it comes to ideology and so forth. And my question is, Larry Diamond, he, he wrote uh, some time back about the 70 year itch that there is there, you, you scratch, you feel that what happened to Soviet Union 70 years ago, could it happen? And somehow you may be surprised that that is so present given how powerful China has become and Xi as well. But there is that uh, itch there and how do you look upon that? <clears throat> Well, as Fairbank used to say, China itches where we don't scratch. Uh, so I can't really answer that one. Uh, what I would say is that you're absolutely right to emphasize the fact that since he came into power, and well before, of course, uh, Xi Jinping has been obsessed by Gorbachev's failure to stand up and keep the Communist Party in power. And remember that in the lead-up to his appointment as the heir apparent, uh, it became clear to uh, uh, people in China that what was being thought about by the elite who would appoint the successor was that a princeling, which Xi Jinping was, would be far more likely to defend the revolution because the family's history was invested in it in a big way. And so... Uh, uh, Xi Jinping became the princeling who won. Uh, Bo Xilai, of course, the princeling who lost. Um, uh, I think Xi Jinping did the smart thing. He never spoke a word out of turn or as he was rising. 
uh, since he's risen, he has spoken many times and with much effect. Borshilai spoke too much while he was rising and he had to be eliminated, even without his wife as a murderess. Um, so uh, I think that um, he is absolutely obsessed with this idea of not having a 70-year itch. Incidentally, you mentioned Huntington. Huntington had the idea of a 60-year itch in America, that every 60 years, starting from the revolution, there would be upheaval in America. The last time in this country was the 60s. Bill Overholt from the Asia Center. Um, your presentation about uh, Xi Jinping's uh, power in eliminating all possible opposition is is uh, uh, incontrovertible. Uh, I wonder if one can also describe him as China's most indecisive leader in the modern times. Uh, and given, hey. He says uh, they're going to put, have a level playing field for the state enterprises, but we're going to strengthen party control and create national champions. Uh, we're going to have the rule of law, uh, but strengthen party control. Uh, we're going to have uh, decisive economic reform, uh, but we're going to continue debt fueled growth in, in, in every area, major area. He seems to say we're going to have our cake and eat it too. Um, that that's not the way Deng Xiaoping and Zhu Rongji handled things. Is so granted that he can eliminate all possible adversaries. Is this a leader who can make the tough decisions, and can he push through difficult uh, policies? Uh, against firm opposition. Uh, well, take your very last remark first. Uh, I'm not sure where the opposition would come from uh, or how it would cohere. I mean, what we've seen over the last uh, five years has been uh, a lot of talk about uh, Jiang Zemin being unhappy, uh, but all we see is him actually looking at his watch while Xi Jinping drones on for th three and a half hours. Um, and uh, we hear about Hu Jintao being unhappy, but no one has had the guts to stand up like Xi Jinping said Gorbachev should have stood up to defend the old order. So I'm not sure where the opposition would come from. But I think in terms of indecision, uh, I think that what she uh, will rely upon in the next uh, five years is the two Wangs. Wang Huning will give him the philosophical basis for the autocratic state which he believes in. Not necessarily Marx and Lenders, except by name, uh, but the autocratic state that he believes in. And Wang Yang, hopefully from a Chinese point of view, will give him the way in which to square that circle, the state-owned enterprises and private enterprise. To some extent, he seemed to have managed it in Guangdong. I don't, you probably know, and Ezra probably knows much more than I do about what they did in Guangdong at that time, but um, that I think would be the salvation and the way that he can avoid being indecisive. Uh, he has not been indecisive on matters of power. 
And uh, if he sees that the issue of the economy and economic development is going to undermine his power, as it was suggested, um, then I think he will certainly grasp whatever nettle Wang Yang or Wang Huning or whoever puts in front of him. Yes, at the back there, very back. Thanks so much for the presentation, uh, Harvard Business School student. Uh, Clement, uh, qu two questions. One question on the um, global leadership part. Uh, starting from Davos, it's clear that he is taking initiative to be dif to be very different type of leader, Chinese leader, as compared to his counterpart before. He's uh, he's seeking the global leadership, and on that, do you think that the One Belt One Road initiative can can he manage? Uh, to uh, make this Bell and Road Initiative succeed? That's question number one. Number two is, I'm very curious because now we see the inflation risk is high in China. Everything, the, all the M2 supply is in real estate. And in a way, uh, it's really similar to what happened, one of the root causes of uh, the upheaval in late 1980s. And also, uh, the corruption was something he just uh, cracked down, but still, it is uh, one of the. Um, uh, it has been one of the issues, and I believe I'm not sure how many p uh, how many officials or uh, how many corruption uh, uh, risks are left to be unsolved. But what's your assessment on this level of of risk, both on the inflation part and the corruption part? Do you think that? Um, something similar would happen down in the road? If not, why do you think not? Thank you. And if I think not, doubtless Xi Jinping will want to hear my opinion. <laughs> um, uh, on, the, uh, uh, on the issue of um, inflation, you're absolutely right that uh, that was a cause, not necessarily the fundamental cause, but certainly a major starting point for the uh, events in uh, 1989. Um, and the inflation now, as you say, is getting higher. Uh, not being an economist, I don't have to say how you, how you deal with this particular inflation. Uh, that it can be brought down by fiat, of course, is the case. Uh, you can regulate real estate prices, much to the annoyance of real estate people, I suppose. But I'm not going to speculate about that. Uh, my feeling is that um, uh, Xi Jinping will have to adopt policies that make sense economically, both domestically in terms of the issues that you've raised, which are direct impact upon the consumer, and also long term have a direct impact on the development of the transformation of the Chinese economy in the way that it won't be trapped in the middle income trap. Um, Xi Jinping has not shown any particular knowledge, deep knowledge of the economy. How could he? He was never educated that way. Um, so he will be heavily dependent, not on his allies who made sure that he stayed in power, uh, the head of organization, the head of the general office, but he'll be heavily dependent on the Wang Hunings and the Wang Yangs and others below uh, who were also his, his people. 
to take on the economic problems. I think uh, one thing I didn't mention um, is that Tsai Chi, the new first secretary of Beijing, who is in the uh, Politburo this time, uh, Tsai Chi was elevated from below the Central Committee. He wasn't even a Central Committee member when he was made first secretary of Beijing of, of the capital city of China. And it shows that if Xi Jinping, just like Deng Xiaoping, if Xi Jinping thinks you've got it and you, you use it on his behalf, he'll pick you from nowhere and use you. Sometimes picking you from nowhere, as in the case of Hu Jintao, doesn't quite work out, but uh, he, will, he will get someone uh, to help him do this because he knows, I think, as a number of you have said, stressed, that the economy is now the major stumbling block at home. Okay, there's one here. There. Hey, um, so I'm Lex Jinglu, assistant professor from Clark University. Can you speak a bit louder, okay. please? Um, so I only have one question about that guy, Wang Huning. So uh, as you said, you know, he's a very interesting figure. You know, it seems like Xi Jinping uh, trusts him to craft that philosophical side uh, to confront these ideological crises. But I think, so what's missing here in our conversation is the general masses. You know, I think it also relates to that lady talks about the disparity in the city and also in the countryside. So how do the masses, how do people who really live in China receive that a uh, 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 message that the new Central Committee is sending to them, you know, and to solve the problem that really happening in China. Because every time I go back to Shanghai, I'm a Shanghainese, you know, I just feel that, you know, people are not really happy. And, uh, and, and the society just increasingly uh, seems like became a police state, you know, the police and also the police under them, you know, constantly harassing the general populace, you know, trying to contour them, you know, using those, uh, those international uh, technology, you know, to censor those information, you know, it seems like the society is going to become something, you know, really strange and it's very weird, but also really powerful. You know, is there a way for Wang Yang and for Wang Huning to work together to craft a message and to make people happy? Well, we'll see about whether they can work together. It seems to me that the, um, uh, the great majority of people in most countries, most of the time, do not know who their leaders are and don't bother with them. You know, they're far away. Uh, and if, in some cases, they deliberately don't want to read about them. Um, so I think that uh, the 19th Party Congress will have uh, passed over the heads of most Chinese, if they're lucky, because it's not them who decided who would go where and who would be promoted. Um, what they will feel, uh, here's one thing that, they, uh, that the Congress has indicated, or the, and the, uh, the, the meeting of the Central Discipline Inspection Committee uh, earlier in this year indicated. What they will feel is if the anti-corruption investigation now really does move more among the flies, because it is, of course, the flies, the local carders, who really afflict people. It's them who do things with the land, who make sure that some industrialist pollutes the water. Um, so I think that that will be one measure by which uh, Xi Jinping will attempt to uh, appease people by 
rooting out local cadres. Uh, it's, the Tigers have been his main aim, I think, this first five years, because they were the main threat. Uh, but I think more local cadres will be attacked in the, in the uh, years to come. Um, whether or not he will be able to appease the urban dwellers, the Shanghainese, like you mentioned, that is a, a more difficult question because these are people who are aware, more aware, not totally aware, but more aware of who is leading them and who is responsible for things that they don't like happening. Uh, I've always felt that the Chinese Revolution was won in the countryside, but it will be lost if it's lost in the cities because that's where people can organize very quickly uh, where students in particular can organize very quickly, as we've seen on a number of occasions in China. Uh, and that's where a failure, a dismal failure to control, say, the stock exchange, uh, inflation, whatever it is, which really grips people in more than one city, that could be a danger to the regime. And so I think that... Um, he will have to find people, not just Wang Yang and Wang Huning. I don't want to say they will be the only people. He's got other people who I didn't mention. Uh, and he'll have to find people who can have the ideas and put the ideas into practice to solve these economic problems. Because as it was indicated earlier, this could be his Achilles heel. In addition to keeping the military on side, he's got to keep the economy rolling and developing and transforming. And that's not an easy job. Thank you.